you speak any French? I I speak like no French. Oh. At all. I was hoping you and uh, let's say Civilize and I could do like a French uh, bonus episode. Bienvenue à la belle. This is the show. Never mind. Welcome to the Bailey. This is the show where all crimes against podcasting are legal for the next episode. I'm your host, Yassine Masoud, and today I'm joined by CRC and Kulak. And today we're having a special Halloween-themed episode. Today we're going to examine how horror movies are often a reflection of present-day anxieties within uh, the culture that they're formed in. That's a pretty good summary. So this topic was uh, primarily instigated by Kulak Revolt. Welcome to the podcast, Kulak. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So I'm a massive horror movie nerd. Um, probably watch like two horror movies a month or more, like in the theater. Big part of my life. Um, my girlfriend and I, our relationship is kind of built on horror movies. Can you explain that? Essentially, um, we were friends for a couple months before we started dating, and the big thing we'd do is get together and watch horror movies. So that was essentially our entire relationship for three four months up until we started dating officially was we'd get together at my place or her place and watch horror movies with some friends you're familiar with the website okay cupid right i i am familiar i'm not 40 i'm young i'd use tinder if i was going to use a dating site you don't have to explain the concept to me yeah there's not there's nothing wrong with being 40 <laughs> Uh, no, the reason I bring it up is because they had, um, so before they were bought up by the conglomerate that they, that currently owns them, they were much more open about their data metrics that they would play around with. So they had, for example, a post that was infamous because it listed kind of ranked gender and race combinations based on most, uh, attractive to least attractive based on how often people were messaged and how often they replied back. So the top of the totem pole was uh, white women. The bottom of the total p- totem pole was male Asians, I think, or black women, uh, one of those two. And it was kind of an honest examination of whatever you want to call it, biases uh, of uh, its users. And I remember one of the episodes, one of the blog posts they had was on how to find the uh, good compatibility and one of them was just to search for horror as a keyword because if if you find it then apparently it's a proxy for so many other facets so it looks like you hacked into that kulak interesting no that makes sense because like horror movies essentially overlaps with nerdiness it overlaps with like broad personally personality type like both my girlfriend and i like are broadly the weird ones of our families. Um, it ties in with like aesthetics of how you like you'll decorate your place. Like I have, like we have five horror movie posters hanging up around us. We have like like I've got a massive poster of Dario Argento's Suspiria on the wall, <laughs> and she's got Reanimator, Return of the Living Dead, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Evil Dead. It was a, an experiment done by OkCupid okay to see which questions were best at investigating uh, people's compatibility. And one of them is, do you like horror movies? 
In other words, have you ever traveled around another country alone? Wouldn't it be fun to chuck it all and go live in a sailboat? Much more consequential than what users think is uh, the best. That's such a weird proxy. Weird because like those three, three you just listed, like don't line up with anything culture war. Like like the sailboat. They don't, but I mean, do you think dating necessarily aligns with culture war battlefronts? I don't think so, but I expect if they came out with a metric, is it all right to have guns in the house that that would just be capturing baseline culture war bias? So like those those three, it's not like, oh yes, he's into horror movies. Ergo, I know he votes this way. Ergo, I have this tribal aversion to him. I hmm. So I'm a I'm a gun owner, and I've generally never admitted it to uh, potential dates until very very late in the game, or an, unless some uh, provincial opportunity presented itself. Uh, and I don't I don't think I found it to be a point of contention. But I, I also admittedly kind of occupy a weird spot in the culture war. I'm a vaguely libertarian Arab immigrant that really likes guns, but generally hangs out with far left activists. So, you know, put me on that political compass if you want. Yeah, I think there's a spot for you on the political compass called confused. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of it is just by necessity, given the... I live in a coastal city, which is surrounded by liberals. So, I could uh, I could be um, could draw like a, a hard line in terms of who I associate and cohort with, but that would be uh, very self destructive from a variety of fronts. Fair enough, mind you. All those vague descriptors. I listen to a podcast, the Socialist Rice Rifle Association, and that describes three of the people on there. <laughs> There's three libertarians in the SRA. Like, I think they describe themselves as a left libertarian or so. And what's confusing is I, don't, I never know whether they mean uh, European libertarian or American libertarian. Those are very different. I've never encountered someone saying European libertarian. Well, they don't say European libertarian. They just say libertarian. And if they're from Europe, they attach a different meaning to it. Fair enough. Fair enough. So I think we were talking about horror movies. Welcome to the Bailey, where we talk about horror movies in a Halloween-themed episode and spend 20 minutes talking about libertarianism instead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like quicksand. You gotta work to keep above it. <laughs> Sorry, you can, you, you can cut that out, but... Alright, let's actually start talking about the, the topic at hand. So, Kulak, you have a special affinity for horror movies. Uh, you would consider yourself a horror movie nerd. Is that correct? Very accurate. What would you say the draw to horror movies is? So... I think there's really two distinct draws. There's um, the baseline adrenal spike. You watch something scary, um, jump scare, or whatever. It's like a roller coaster. And your standard Bloomhouse movie, you watch it, the plot's terrible, but there's lots of jump scares and you're hopping up and down in your seat. Like, that's half of it, and it does seem to be a massive part of the market. The other half of it is. Um, weirdness what do you mean by weirdness like the lineage of kind of like weird tales magazine and stuff like that like stuff that wouldn't necessarily have the physiological effect but it's just um like it's the genre in terms of um the tropes the kind of things it plays with but also the willingness to break that so for example in a horror movie you can just do things you can't do in 
other genres. You can have a 50-foot woman dealing with the problems of being a 50-foot woman, and it's like, you can't do that in a comedy or, or a drama, really, but in a horror movie, it's kind of allowed. Like, really, when I look at the lineage of it, like, like the weird comic book culture that you get in stuff like Creepshow, um, Lovecraft, Stephen, Stephen King, like, all the bigs into the genre, that's what they all have in common, is that they share that lineage and kind of the willingness to take really out their concepts and like cartoonish concepts and then treat them seriously. What do you think is uh, the defining aspect of uh, a horror movie? Like what would you, what would your definition be? Obviously genres are always difficult to pin down because um, the boundaries are permeable and often overlapping but in terms of what essential components of a horror movie? I'd say it's the unnatural interacting with a natural setting. Like, mm. like that's really the essence of it. Like, even if you look at something like The Witch or an art house horror, like Inheritance or um, the director of Midsummer, um, essentially his entire shtick was you have, let's take Mc- Midsummer, for example, movie just came out. Midsummer was a movie that came out about um, just this last summer about a a group of um, university students who go go to Norway to um, enjoy this Norwegian festival with um, one of their friends who's from the village originally, and then it's slowly revealed that it's a human sacrifice ritual, and it's really weird, kind of. Um, if you ever saw The Wicker Man, it's that, but, like, with lots of gore. And essentially, the entire shtick is, after the first human sacrifice happens, because they're anthropology students, their thing is, oh my god, our careers are made. So they see the first <laughs> human sacrifice, and they're like, hey, hey, can we write our thesis about you? And it's very weird, and the center of it is this horrible relationship between the main character and her boyfriend. And how essentially they really shouldn't have been together, but her sister committed suicide in a way that killed her entire family. And so he didn't leave because, you know, you can't leave someone after their entire family has died and their relationship just degraded after that. So, like, already you have this this natural situation, these friends in this relationship, which is already invaded by this incredibly unnatural um, destruction of this girl's entire family. And then they go on a trip, something, you know, everyone does with their friends, a very natural thing for young people to do. And then they encounter this incredibly unnatural pagan community that's somehow surviving in 2019. That's pretty much the essence of it. And that's why it's so different from other genres, even if like you still have the humor or you still have the drama or you still have, I don't know the music if it's a musical horror is because you have this in- these incredibly unnatural elements that wouldn't be believable in any of other genre, but it's like no, these one in a million cases those are what we're going to focus on. So, do you think it would be fair to characterize uh, horror movies as a way to it's a way to take a typical situation and heighten the disparities and contradictions within that normal situation? By introducing these very unusual and very unnatural phenomena. 
that's accurate, but I think you might have the causation reverse. I think horror kind of originates out of like the observation of like incredible incredibly unusual or unnatural things, like the one murder that happens in your town, the one creepy house that's been abandoned for like fifty years, etc. And then the process of bringing that observed thing in to the dramas and the situations you already have. And that's why horror is a genre bad, bad properties that are like very poorly executed can still be like iconic and legendary because they for example, Friday the thirteenth, none of those movies are especially good. But the concept of the unnatural element, the creepy sub summer camp where there's a legend about this killer and like some people did die there under mysterious circumstances. That unnatural element is well realized, so horror fans are willing to forgive the fact that Kevin Bacon's acting was horrible in the original, or that all the sequels just degraded in quality. What do you think makes a good horror movie and what makes a bad horror movie, according to you, and also according to kind of the typical definition? So there's kind of two ways a horror movie can be good. There's the usual way of just making a good movie. Like, even if it, like, the horror element is kind of really underrealized, you can still have a great property that's a ghost story story and just have the drama succeed on that level. But then, but then it would be a good movie with horror elements instead of a good horror movie. Exactly. Whereas a good horror movie kind of has to explore something something primal or natural in a way that just works for whatever it's exploring. Okay. So uh, that, that, that comes, that, that makes a little bit more sense to me because um, a lot of the movies that I liked uh, apparently, and of course I've been doing research on the side, a lot of the movies that I liked are apparently classified either somewhat as horror movies. Uh, probably my favorite movie of all time, The Silence of the Lambs. I wouldn't have initially called that a horror movie because to me, horror movies mean, you know, like you said, jump cuts, um, people getting slashed, uh, all of all of those usual tropes. But um, when you said, you know, exploring something primal, I, th- I think that that is, uh, that, 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 you know, maybe slightly disturbing, that Silence of the Lambs completely fits the bill. Yeah, that that absolutely makes sense. And then you can like branch out and see um, where movies that aren't horror movies in a lot of respects and weren't made as horror movies get sucked into the genres. For example, um, the Ken Russell's The Devils is just a drama set in 15th century France about a priest who Essentially, it's a political movie. It's a struggle between between a priest and the French crown, and it culminates. Essentially, the priest is acting as a governor of this town, and the the French king wants to muscle him out. And it ends that um, they frame him for witchcraft, and all this depravity happens. And it ends they succeed, and they manage to dynamite the town's walls, or not dynamite gunpowder. And you also see it with Witchfinder General, the Vincent Price vehicle, where it's just about a guy hunting witches. And none of the witches are, like, magical witches or anything, but it becomes an iconic iconic horror movie because it's so weird and out there. And it 
exploring something very natural, which is a guy who's been given complete power to act as judge, jury, and executioner or in a society that is otherwise non-totalitarian. So let's run through some exemplars of recent horror movies. You brought up uh, The Purge, which is a series that started in 2013. Ulek, what can you tell us about The Purge? So The Purge, basic concept, pretty straightforward. One night of the year, all crime is legal. Um, there are established, like, a few restrictions, like surface air missiles and, like, high explosives. It's very vague, but, like, class four and above weapons aren't allowed, which is presumably explosives. But apart from that, everything's fair game. And for one night of the year, it's just, it's essentially similar to Halloween. Everyone dresses up and goes out and commits murder, and some people participate and some people don't. The property was really weird. It started off as an Ethan Hawke vehicle, this one one movie that was about a family that wouldn't participate in Purge, but they save, save a guy and things develop from there, and now they've got to survive Purge Night. And essentially how it developed was, especially with how 2016 changed things, was um, it became increasingly a commentary on American politics. So there are Black Lives Matter film parallels to, say, Antifa or the Pink Pistols. But it's gotten to the point where they're doing everything they can to say it's 2019 America while still having this fantasy murder fest every year and having the entire society run by a, by a fake political party. So supposedly the inspiration behind the Purge series was the Night of Terror in 1960, 1969 Montreal, where uh, for 16 <laughs> hours, <laughs> police officers and firefighters uh, went on strike due to a labor dispute and did not work for 16 hours. Things were roughly okay up until night hit, and then there was just mass looting everywhere. I don't know if this is a reflection of just Canadian society, uh, but I think two people two people died. 100 people were arrested, and there was some property damage as a result. So essentially, they definitely didn't have the Night of Terror in mind, but I always like to joke, Montreal's the city where the purge happened, because they're hard to imagine. Back in 2013, people didn't really believe the purge when it came out. Like They looked at the concept, and they're like, and I remember my mother and a bunch of other people saying, well, that concept is stupid. What, crime's illegal for one night and people are just going to murder their neighbors and each other and stuff? No, that's dumb. People won't do that just because, you know, the cops stopped working or whatever. So the Montreal Night of Terror, I'd always joke, was the city where the purge actually happened. And then starting around 2015, 2016, both the purge movies got more political and people got more political in just their thought experiments about The Purge. So 2013, 2014, I hear people say, oh, The Purge, that wouldn't happen. Even if crime was legal, it wouldn't, wouldn't happen. And I haven't heard that in five years. There was, a, there was an interesting um, kind of video essay critique by film theorists about The Purge series. And it tries to give it a very, uh, what's the word, a very rational outlook uh, or a very practical outlook in terms of how a purge, if it happened in real life, how it would actually be enacted. Because one of the issues that they pointed out is, sure, like the films kind of devolve into this giant murder fest, but 
In reality, you don't necessarily want to commit murder, even if it was legal, because there are some severe non-legal repercussions that will inevitably arise from that. You've laid it out very well that essentially if you decide to to rob a bank or a company, well, sure, you might get away with the money and it was legal that you did it, but they can come after you next year and you might kill your rivals in business, but they can come after you next year as well. So it becomes, even though the law isn't stalking you down, it becomes a weird game of cat and, cat and mouse where it's like, the official investigators aren't going to investigate me, but the private investigators are going to track this down anyway. So what he came came up with, how essentially the perg would swing out, is that the biggest crime that you could get away with very profitably would be organ harvesting. Yeah, and he and he envisioned a scenario where essentially hospitals turn into an assembly line of organ harvesting where they pick up bodies off the street from the mayhem and try to turn a profit from it. Approximately, what was it, like $500,000 worth of body parts from each dead person? Something like that that was estimated. Yeah, and obviously you can get really macabre with it, which is a lot of body parts, hearts especially. Essentially, as soon as a person dies, they're worthless in minutes. Whereas he didn't get into it because he's a good person and doesn't think that way. But essentially, it is established in the Purge series and movies that kidnappings do happen on Purge Night for various purposes. And it's easy to imagine that if there's, you know, millions of dollars walking, that it could develop even beyond just collecting bodies off the street on more macabre levels. When, we, when we've had uh, comparable events in real life, so uh, the Night of Terror in Montreal, uh, and also, you know, far more consequential was the 1992 Los Angeles riots. Generally, what you see is the primary vehicle for mayhem is looting because it's anonymous and it's, uh, it has a short-term benefit. It's immediately beneficial without any real repercussions in the long run. But I think that only becomes practical when these events are a surprise. So the Night of Terror, it's not like every shop owner necessarily knew what was going to happen. They just went home for the day, expected their fellow Canadians to behave themselves, and were caught off guard when people just started busting down windows and trying to like scoop out every, every valuable insight. If you go back and watch the CBC archive, there are a few fun little bits about apparently gun laws in Canada in the 60s were very lax, guys guarding their shops with rifles, but but looting definitely was the primary vehicle. The Night of Terror was also weird compared to other riots, both in that there was like kind of six hours notice before before sundown, and also because... um, the unions and collectives in Montreal got in on it. So essentially there was a long-standing rivalry between the taxis and the limo services in Montreal because the, the limo companies based out of Murray Hill and Griffintown, for whatever legal reason that that limo company, probably English-Canadian corruption, um, they had exclusive rights to the airport. So the front deliberation to taxi which is a hilarious play on the front deliberation to Quebec, which was an actual terrorist group at 
at the time. I find it so entertaining that one of the instigators of the, the Night of Terror were just 200 taxi drivers. It reminds me of um, the faction in Snow Crash, the Tajikistan taxi drivers that were their own semi-autonomous nation. I mean, if you look at the how hot the conflict between Uber and taxis got at points, that's Snow Crash almost directly predicted the future. But um, the taxis essentially got to the point where they crashed burning buses into Murray, into the Murray Hill limo service. And there were shots fired between private security at Murray Hill and um, the riding taxi drivers, which is insane. And you wouldn't think they could get that coordinated in like six hours notice. The entire police strike lasted 16 hours and only about 10 of them at night so they had six hours notice and they still had armed protests and burning vehicles crashing into buildings so what i find interesting are the parallels between the night of terror in montreal and the 1992 la riots so the la riots were i think approximately a four-day event there were 63 people dead 12,000 people arrested uh and the the deployment of national guard as well as uh the marines and other infantry in Los Angeles. And within LA, you saw kind of a microcosm feud bubble up into a much larger affair. And that was primarily between Korean shop owners and the African-American community, where Koreans felt targeted by the African-American community and they took various steps to defend themselves. It was one shop owner that purchased the five AK-47 rifles as a way to show force and protect the, their property from any further looting. And the commentary around this is that, you know, ostensibly the riots were about the beating of Rodney King and how the LAPD officers that were involved in that beating were acquitted by a jury. That's when, the timber, uh, that's when a match fell on the tinderbox, so to speak. But the targets of the riot weren't really police officers necessarily, but they, it quickly shifted into the Korean American community and their shops and how they were seen as encroachments within their neighbors. Really interesting. And the same, um, the Montreal riot, it was the police going on strike and yet the police were completely sitting out the actual riot. Like the people who ostensive, um, grievances caused the night in question weren't even present. at So that like, there's definitely a sociological, thing there where it's like like the factor that causes law in order to not be present isn't necessarily the factor that causes people to go and think there's something to gain while law and order isn't present. I admit that if we do follow the realistic logic the movies probably wouldn't be as interesting because everyone would know that there would be subtext about a, another feud that we're not really privy to. Well that's the the thing in the movies, um, essentially the first movie, it's the purge is a thing and it's like, why is this a thing? It's left unexplained. In subsequent movies, it's slowly revealed that the new founding fathers, the political party that brought them in, um, is essentially using it as a means of population control and to sort out undesirables. Because if you're rich, you can afford um a barricaded house or all these things that make you relatively safe on Perchonite. Whereas if you're poor in a bad neighborhood, you know, Perchonite just becomes an excuse to visit more 
on you and the series kind of culminated with um they made a prequel the first purge which revealed that the first purge night really no violence was happening and the new founding fathers the party had to actually prod people into violence and like release criminals to commit violence and it ends with um they actually sicken like pill paramilitary and it's revealed to be like members of the the army and black units who dressed as dressed as regular rioters would go around and ethnically cleanse the people they didn't like. The first Perch movie that's shown to be um poor blacks and housing products. Which is really interesting in that they essentially show the American government using a tactic that the Russians were then employing in U- Ukraine, and you can see it in other other wars, but it was a very inflammatory statement. I'm amazed if you get more commentary. Now, I had, I had no idea that the purge was so deep. Um, I mean, it was. Uh, then again, I hadn't. I never saw the follow-ons. I saw the original one with Ethan Hawke, but and I thought it was a, an enjoyable movie at the time. But uh, I, I, yeah, now now I'm gonna want to go watch the others. <laughs> No, it's an amazingly, like, political, like, essentially took the hard political swing around the time Trump was elected. Um, they had the Purge election year, which was the second or third movie, which was before Trump was elected, but essentially it centered on um, a political candidate who's shown to be, like, kind of modeled after Elizabeth Warren, like, just in this, the style of, like, who they got to play it and what she sounded like. Um, essentially, she was campaigning on, we're going to end the purge, we're going to save the soul of our country, etc., etc. And then Purge Night happens, and she has a security detail, but essentially they deploy mercenaries and the military, essentially Delta Force, to try and, um, to try and have her assassinated. Because, again, everything's legal on Purge Night, so... If a political candidate turns up dead, yeah, it's what happened. And and then as soon as they, as Trump was elected in 20, 2016 happened, it took a very hard political stance on, oh, this is explicitly to weed out undesirables and alter the demographics of the country in a way that's desirable to this, this fictionalized um, political party that's like, kind of supposed to be a hard right party like it's weird how they explicitly tie it to american politics but they also back off from it in weird ways like it's like i said earlier it's one or two multiverses over where um where 2008 or 2000 was a way worse recession than it was here and this party came to power but apart from that like it's very explicitly supposed to be 2013 america or 2015 america or the most recent one was like 2018 yeah that's uh, the it's interesting how you're saying that it, it shifted its kind of um uh mentality around the time trump was elected because sort of the the third uh, the th- Looks like the third one was actually released before he was elected in 2016. But as you as you describe it, it seems like that the that one is a commentary on the deep state, 
which of course comes uh, comes to play in in more right wing circles after Trump's election, um, and then the the movie sort of shifts away from that on over to the the right wing aspect of it. So one thing I thought about with regards to the proliferation of zombie themed movies and zombie themed video games from a few years ago is the zombie apocalypse kind of gives a fresh start to our current potentially stagnant societal order where any random nobody can just become a new hero because their previously neglected skills are much more valued within this new setting. So a car mechanic would, would be potentially low status in our current society, but be much more valuable and much more sought after in a, a, in within the zombie apocalypse. I saw that with the AMC's Walking Dead and how the rednecks in the show, I forgot the name, but the rednecks in the show were seen as some of the most capable people part of the posse because they had very high survival skills and this fortitude and adaptability that wasn't necessarily present in other folks. So it gave them kind of a resurgence to really demonstrate their, their self-worth. The other facet, I think, was the appeal was with regards to the fantasy of being able to murder not quite humans with any, without any moral repercussions. Obviously, no legal repercussions, but also no moral repercussions. So it becomes a way to live out this fantasy of mass slaughter of actual human beings, but without any of the downsides that come along with that. And I'd also add in the the third fantasy of just inheriting all the wealth of society. Like, um, in a zombie movie, you're the only person who has access to maybe an entire city's neighborhood and all of its wealth. So that's a re- one of the reoccurring things, especially um, Zombieland, was that they live in mansions or other, other things, these blue-collar characters, and would stockpile the best best of everything because it could, because all the owners of the actual stuff were dead now. Yeah, that was uh, that was also prevalent in um, John Romero's Dawn of the Dead, where which took place in a mall. And that was much more explicit in terms of its commentary and consumerism and capitalism in general. Yeah, now that I think about it, that probably plays in the, to the fantasy a lot more. I never actually thought of it that way because I I was born well after after the 80s. Essentially, like all the stuff you'd see in the store there, I think of it as like, oh, it's an entire world of my grandmother's junk. There was a there was a scene, I think, where it just showed the zombies mindlessly milling around while elevator music was playing and the characters just say like, oh, these zombies don't know what they're doing. They're just kind of reverting to this primal instinct of seeking out familiarity within a shopping mall. Yeah, no, um, I got, I got those digs against consumerism, but I didn't get like the double dig of like, oh yes, the zombies are living out the existence in the mall, but I didn't, and oh, they're, they're mindless and they're just doing this out of instinct, but I didn't also see that it's a commentary on the characters as well. Where the world ends and what do they do? They go, they go to a mall and live it up with all the stuff. Yeah, I think I remember there was a montage of them kind of shopping around, eating all the 
snacks and kind of enjoying themselves because they don't have to pay for anything. Yeah, and I think they actually had to work to have like the lights turned off or something to or like making sure that the shotgun's always over their shoulder to keep it from just looking like another 80s shopping montage. Some of those malls look like straight out of um straight out of the commercials, which is really weird because aesthetic aside from um I think Zack Snyder remade Day of the Dead in 2004 and kind of replicated that that with the mall not quite as much though and aside from that zombie movies have really focused on kind of grit and grime in terms of spiritual successor there was a video game that was also a zombie video game that was based in a, a mall and it kind of handed up even further because it gave you encouraged you implicitly to seek out the wildest outfits and the wildest weapons like you know, taping two chainsaws to a row to create a new weapon or uh, accessorizing with as many weird niche accessories as you can get, all the while running through a, a sea of zombies. I remember I played the second Dead Rising. They made orgies of consumerism like you had to choose whether you wanted a regular wooden baseball bat that you could mod out with nails or whatever, or I think you could even mod it out with bling if you raided the jewelry store and then went back to the workshop, or whether you wanted the aluminum baseball bat, which you could actually hit magically respawning baseballs as a zombie. So yeah, that one definitely played into it. Like, one of the reoccurring themes was with zombie movies and why I think your play on the fantasy of killing your fellow man or guiltlessly or the resentment you have towards your fellow man is every single zombie movie, the biggest threat is the zombies. It's it's other people right down to Night of the Living Dead where, spoiler alert, it ends with the last survivor, um, our main character, escapes the house, house and then the mop-up crew who's coming around mistakes him for a zombie because he's covered and shoots him. Yeah, some people thought that that was a commentary on race, myself included. But when I read on the background, uh, John Romero said that he didn't have a, a cast in mind when he wrote the script. And then when he cast the black guy as the, as the lead, he never changed the script. So it was, it was there from the beginning. Yeah. Like the racial commentary was definitely like, like it's still powerful. Like the cop coming around to restore order and then shooting the black, black victim of the disorder is, like, still a power, powerful image, but in terms of, like, the actual genre of zombie movies, like, you have that theme re- that theme of just the humans are the true threat reoccurring and reoccurring and reoccurring. So, um, one of the weirdest successors to Night of the Living Dead series of Return of the Living Dead, essentially the pitch is that these guys have all seen Night of the Living Dead. They're working at a medical supply store and they bust open like a canister that was marked army on it. All suddenly the cadavers start writhing and reanimate essentially. But when they go to kill it like in the movie and cut off the head, it doesn't kill them. Like you can cut off a finger and the finger will keep crawling towards you. So they disable it, run across the street to the crematorium because they're right next to a graveyard and say, hey, we have to burn this. This is the only way. We have to destroy every last inch of it. 
they burn it, but then it rains down and the zombie and all the dead in the cemetery rise up. So now they're trapped in the crema- crematorium and it develops and it develops and they keep experimenting with like, all right, we'll destroy the head. No, that doesn't work. We'll cut off the head. No, that doesn't work. And then they're eventually they're like, hey, there was a number on that canister. So they fight their way back, back across the street to the medical supply center, call the army and like explain everything to the army. And this colonel who was established at the start of the film, very stressed out because it's still missing, is like, oh, yes, you've done the right thing. Like, thank you so so much for this. For this, you did you did what was right. And then he calls in a nuclear strike on them. That was a fun one because it was really the opposite of what you get in most zombie movies because Return of the Living Dead, there are all these disparate characters. There are the kids working at the medical supply store. There are their punk friends. There's the businessman who's kind of shady. There's the creepy um, cremat- guy working in the crematorium. And absolutely every one of them does the right thing. Like, they're all helpful. They all do what's necessary. Things just keep getting worse no matter what. And at the end, they do the ultimate right thing. They call the army and alert at great risk to themselves. And then society abandons them. So this reminds me of another movie called Girl With All The Gifts from 2016. Anyone saw that? I did not. No, I haven't seen it. So I don't know if you care about me spoiling it. So Girl With All The Gifts starts off as a conventional zombie movie where in an army base, we have like a group of uh, young children that are bound and paraded in front of a teacher. And you can tell that they're sort of a, some sort of test subjects. Uh, and then it becomes clear that there's this uh, fungus that turns people into zombies and that these kids are somehow the the key to finding a vaccine to reverse the outcome or at least immunize the humans from becoming mindless zombies. The curious thing is once someone is infected, if they're already pregnant when they get infected, their children don't suffer any ill effects and their, their children are the test subjects. So essentially you have this almost new generation of humans that is immune to the plague that is terrorizing human mankind but they still have these kind of uncontrollable urges when they meet the old humans so they're pseudo zombies in some ways similar to the resident evil setup same virus that um creates the zombies also can create mutations and superhumans right what i found interesting about this movie is it starts off very conventionally it's like okay we have all these uh, we have all these soldiers and scientists and they're going to be the last stand for mankind. They help hold themselves up in this army base and they're working hard to figure out the cure. But in the end, spoiler alert, they all die. And what's left to repopulate the world is the new generation of quote unquote zombies. And what I found interesting is there's always this, um, assumption in zombie movies that the humans are the ones that have to win and this one kind of flips it and says well why is that what does that have to be true why why do humans have an innate privilege existing well i like that i like that ending um because it it sort of lines up with the math that if you have a zombie apocalypse they're going to win can you say a little more about that it's obviously a um kind of a uh you know, for funsies uh, thing, but they uh, somebody tried to use the, uh, I think it was the uh, the, the predator prey model, um, uh, which is a, a 
mathematical model that determines the stable equilibrium between a, um, a prey animal and, and a predator animal and said that there is no stable e- equilibrium between zombies and humans since if every human that dies becomes a zombie, um, then uh, <laughs> you, you're, you're just going to increase the number every, uh, every time. 28 Days Later was actually weird. There's this weird culture war within the zombie zombie genre between um the living dead and the the infected and essentially it's exactly what it sounds like the living dead is um the zombies rise up and they're reanimated corpses whereas the infected it's it's a smaller genre 28 days later was one of the david cronenberg's rabbit said in montreal again was um one of them where um essentially they the person never died, they just got infected with the disease and they have a lifespan and they're vulnerable and, you know, you sever an artery, they'll bleed out or if you, or if they trip, they might break their legs, etc. And it's a big cultural battle with in the community because the infected is a scenario that plausibly could happen. It feels more realistic, but it's also less likely to evolve into apocalypse. Or if it does, it's far more survivable because if you travel, you know, 200 kilometers into the wasteland where no people and all these people are infected with essentially rabies, it's like, all right, are all the let's say there's a million infected people in a city with rabies and you're 400 kil- kilometers away in the desert, even if they do wander your your way, they're going to die in the desert of nat- natural causes, and they have a half life, presumably, because either the disease kills them or just reduces their survivability. Their mind, they're essentially mindless and have only aggression is going to kill them because they don't have supply lines, they don't have food, etc. etc. So that evolves into an interest the apocalypse where it's like if you're in the epicenter, like they might be, they'll be fast zombies or et cetera, because they're still relatively intact. But once you escape, they burn themselves out much faster. So when you say culture war between the zombie, within the zombie genre, how does that actually play out in terms of why would someone choose one affiliation over the other? Essentially, like it plays out a lot in terms of like what you want out of the zombie movie or how you want to play out. So, um, so the living dead zombie movie, like the zombies are going to be around for grandkids are going to be dealing with zombies if you survive that long. So like that lines up with a lot of different, different fantasies around it. So zombie land, walking dead, etc. That idea of continuity of, oh, this maintains, maintains itself and you're building your own little survival shelter of, um, you know, five to to thirty people you deeply trust, that kind of tribal society, that's always gonna be the case in a living dead scenario where there are reanimated corpses. So the thing is, an infected scenario, both um twenty eight days later and David Cronenberg's Rabbit ends with the army wins. And Rabbit, um essentially they shoot all the poor infected citizens of Montreal in raw indifference, dump their bodies in garbage garbage trucks, and then order restores, and all our heroes are dead. 
but the city of Montreal is back to normal in a month. Montreal lives again. Whereas 28 days later, the opening title card is 28 days later, the guy wakes up, then the events of the movie happen, and then the ending title card is 28 days later, all the zombies are dead, and the UN leads an army in, etc. And even if you do have a total apocalypse where it's like, okay, it's everywhere, the entire world gets it, all these people die, governments fall. Well, the first thing that happens is 28 days later, or however the half-life of the zombies is, all suddenly you can start organizing advanced societies. So it becomes like, you can have fiction. I'm pretty sure there's some some fictional book out there where it turns into like ancient Athenian city-states or another one where it turns medieval or another one where it becomes like World War I or whatever your sociological theory of what the natural state of humanity would be with a significantly reduced population and vaguely our techno level. So, so in one world, it's like, oh, the tribal like zombie survivor subgroup is the natural unit of humanity. Whereas in another, it's like, oh, there's this chaos, and then all suddenly advanced societies start up. So can you think of uh, any popular depictions of living dead scenarios? Because from your description, living dead scenarios are much more much bleaker, because there's really no cure for it. But an infected scenario is more like a modern-day plague, with the assumption that our tools, our available tools, are going to help us win in the end. Well, that's the thing. Um, the living dead scenarios, there are far more movies of living dead scenarios. Like, that's all of George Romero's stuff. That's all all of um, the Walking Dead is a living dead scenario. They die, and then they rise up as zombies. Um, that's zombie land, essentially. There's never an idea that, like, oh, yeah, these zombies are tripping or cutting themselves on bar or something. And then infection's going to get them, or they're going to starve and die. Like the infection scenario is really the orphan of the genre, kind of the black sheep. Like there's only like five or six that you can really think of. John Carpenter's Crazies is one. Dave Cronenberg's Rabbit. Twenty Eight Days Later, and really, people are far less committed to, shall we say, imagining the infected scenario versus the living dead scenario. 28 days later also seems like it has a, a political bent um, uh, in that to me, it reminded me of, um, I believe it's called Grunard Island in the UK where they did a bunch of chemical weapons research and the, and the Island had to be decontaminated and all that. Well, since in 28 days later, the rest of the world didn't have a zombie problem. It was, it was confined to Great Britain. The question would be, like, why so much more of the fantasy attached to the living dead scenario, which seems on the face of it much versus the infected scenario. Seems like, like the genre is just built on very societal criticism. Yeah, to me, the difference stems from, you know, like, the, the, the reason why the uh, infected uh, became so strong is because we, everybody was you know we had a lot of scares with viruses from the um yeah, start uh, aids epidemic all uh, on through the 90s and tw- 2000s um whereas the uh 
the other meth, uh, zombie type that you were mentioning is more um, supernatural in origin. And uh, We started off with uh, an explicitly living dead scenario, but then over time as we have these um, you know, modern-day plagues like the AIDS ep- epidemic, we don't necessarily have to reach for the supernatural to conjure up a similarly devastating or terrifying uh, event. Yeah, and I guess I guess you could say that in the uh, in the early um, zombie uh, movies and thing and zombie legends, it yeah, religion played a much larger role in popular in the popular mentality than it does now. And now it's it's you know we're we're much more science based. So the 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 genre adapted by by moving away from you know uh, a living dead supernatural zombie to an infected zombie because it, uh, it, it while leaving the the zombieist the zombiness intact. Yeah, but my my thing is when I look at zombie movies movies and properties today, like The Walking Dead is The Walking Dead. It's not the one infected. Like the fantasy of zombies is really like the idea of oh, you're all suddenly important now. Oh, you all suddenly have all this wealth. Oh, you have an excuse now to live out your violent urges on random people on the street. Like, the entire fantasy seems like it's intimately tied up with the living dead version of it as opposed to the infected version, which, like, would seem really odd and counterintuitive since the living dead version is a version that, like, you aren't going to survive or, like, build anything in. Like, why would that be fantasy? And I think the reason is in the living dead scenario. You don't have to imagine a beyond your little tribal existence where you're enjoying all this wealth and freedom. So I think the reason that um, essentially the living dead has such a larger place in our imagination and like all the fantasies like walking dead, zombie land, like the empowerment fantasy of it is tied up with the living dead is because the zombie apocalypse doesn't end. Like, you're always going to be in your group of, like, five to ten survivors, like, enjoying the wealth of a civilization collapse and the freedom that comes with it. Whereas, if it's the infected and it will end, all suddenly the Canadian government's going to come in and start shooting all the infected, or um, all suddenly the British Army's going to come in and start flamethrowing and stuff. It turns into a political thriller in that, and I think that really damages the fantasy that people want the zombie apocalypse without end. I wonder if you can delineate that along tribal lines, because the infected scenario to me explicitly calls for a big government intervention to fix the solu- uh, to fix the situation. Whereas uh, the living dead scenario relies more on close knit traditional relationships and much more of a self-sustaining ethos than the former. That would make sense. Um, except the infected scenario, Aside from World War Z, which was despised because it was the government solving the problem, um, all the infected scenarios are very grim, where it's the government solves the problem by being inhuman in some way. Right, fair enough. It could be a critique of it as well. And vice versa, like the living death scenario could be a critique of how humans are just going to devolve into these, you know, they're going to be at each other's throat much more than the living dead are, are going to do any damage. Exactly. Um, in, in the living dead scenario, you have to deal with 
bikers and raiders and other tribes that went Mad Max. And in the infected scenario, you have to deal with your government coming in and deciding you're one of the things that needs to be quarantined and exterminated. Right. Okay. I think that's a good stopping point. Any Anything else? Yep, I got nothing. Did you have fun, Kulak? I had fun. Cool. Thank you for joining us.